morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 18. This week we're talking about Jesus before Pilate. Last week we talked about Jesus before the Sanhedrin. The week before that it was Jesus in the garden. And so this week we're just going to pick up the ball, carry it a few more yards as we make our way to the end zone of Calvary here in a couple weeks. And if you have your Bibles and you have them open, or either on your devices, John chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words of Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your own people, your own chief priest who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were my servants, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. Jesus answered, and I love the way the Greek words it. You say well that I am a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. And for this reason, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him saying again and again, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man! As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, 
You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Do you realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. That is the word of the Lord. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we read your text, we dive in to your word this morning. Please, Lord, give us all ears to hear. Give us the eyes to see. Give us the minds to understand. And give us the hearts to receive. Lord, make me less so that you and truly become more. All these things we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior and friend. Amen. Well, that's the story for this week. Jesus goes before Pilate. It's not much more fun than last week, but I promise you, I will do my best to make this way more fun than last week. All right? Last week was a little bit difficult felt a lot of emotion. It's, it's very hard when you walk through that emotion of what Jesus felt. It's hard not to feel it. Here, the, the emotion seems to shift a little. Not a whole lot, but enough. And in that, the story of, they're taking, the Jews have kind of had what they call, that he's committed blasphemy. He said he's the son of God, but we want to execute him, but we can't. We see that in the text. It says, in verse 28, that the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. Pause button. Now that word, where in yours it says palace of the Roman governor, that is the Greek word praetorion. That would have been more than likely, most historians kind of go back and forth because there was Fort Antonius right next to the temple that this is possibly where Pilate was stationed when he went to Jerusalem for the time of Passover. But what has to be clarified is Pilate wasn't stationed in Jerusalem. He was stationed up north in Caesarea. And there's an amphitheater there that butts up against the Mediterranean Sea. In that is we understand when Pilate kind of took over the Judean area in 26 AD, Pilate doesn't exactly get off to the right 
foot. The first thing he does when he comes into Jerusalem, he's got the big parade, the big Roman parade. We're here to make our authority. I'm the new guy in charge. Here's all these banners of Caesar. Here's all these shields of Caesar. And he marches right into the temple. And he hangs it all up on the wall. Does the first commandment ring a bell? No other gods before me, right? Oh yeah, the Jews took this one pretty seriously. And so what do they do? They start revolting. And they literally follow Pilate from Jerusalem all the way back up to Caesarea saying, take the standards down, take the standards down. No other God before me. Bam, bam, bam. They're just nailing him, right? And finally, he takes all those Jews that banned the misfits that are going after him and he gathers them in the amphitheater and he surrounds them with his Roman soldiers and he says, you either knock this off or I am going to kill you all. And they think because they're, they're so staunch for God, they think they're doing the right thing that they stiffen their necks and they said, no other gods before me. We're not worshiping Caesar. We're worshiping Yahweh. They stiffened their necks and said, then kill us all. And they called him on his bluff. And when they called him on his bluff, what happened? Tells all of his soldiers, shh, put him back. Strike one. Because the Jews write to Tiberius, tell him everything, and Tiberius writes back down to, to Pilate and goes, yeah, take the standards down out of their temple. Strike one. 26 AD. Not long after that, Pilate made another bad mistake. All right? He takes money from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I have Jewish friends, and I've learned over the years, you don't take money from a Jew and expect them just to get over it. So what happens? They revolt even more. And Pilate goes, yeah, 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 bang. Roman soldiers, take off your uniforms, put civilian clothes on, go out into the streets, and if anybody's riding over this kind of money thing, I want you to club them. But do not kill them. Well, some of them got killed. What happens? We're writing Tiberius again. Tiberius writes back down to Pilate. You better fix yourself. Strike two. There will not be strike three. And at that time of Passover, he's got two strikes as he sits in the box, and then they bring him Jesus. And more than likely, he was in the Praetorian, not actually Fort Antonius, because it was kind of like, you know, not really nice. And King Herod, like Antipas, really knew how to build some palaces. He had like the finest buildings of everywhere you would go. And so where do you think a Roman prefect would want to stay? Would he want to stay at, you know, the run-down hotel that's got nothing but a cot and a bucket? Or do you think he would want to go to, like, the Hilton? Oh, yeah, I'm Pilate. I'm in Rome. I'm a Roman. I'm coming to stay in the Hilton. And he more than likely probably stayed in Herod's palace. But we don't know for sure. The text doesn't say. It just says that he set up shop, he set up his praetorian, and they... Bring Jesus to him. By now, it was early in the morning. You need to circle those two words, early in the morning, because the Holy Spirit puts that in the text to let us know this is kind of a hurry-up operation. Roman courts normally in that time started around sunrise. And so 
Pilate being the governmental official, he kind of had work to do while he was down, coming down out of Caesarea into Judea, into Jerusalem for the time of Passover to let the Jews know, hey, you can have your festival, all fun and games, I'm still in charge. Rome is still your authority. And he comes down there, and there's probably some just regular, everyday judicial business he's taking care of. And then all of a sudden, these guys show up early in the morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, the Jews did not enter the praetorion. Your translation probably still says palace again. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. And you go, why wouldn't they go into the praetorion? Why wouldn't they go? What does ceremonial uncleanliness have to do with this? Well, when we back up into our Old Testament, we realize that there's this law that if you come in contact with a dead body, you kind of got to like, you know, cleanse yourself for a while and you can't partake in Passover. Because you've come in contact with a dead body. And you might think, well, what does that have to do with going into the praetorian? Well, the Jews, as well as the Grecians and Romans, they were known for doing this. The Jews knew of it. They were known for taking aborted fetuses and washing them down the drain. And we think our country's bad. And so they thought, well, going into a Gentile house, that's coming into the contact of a dead body. So we can't go in there. We don't want to defile ourselves even though we've pretty much defiled ourselves all night lying about jesus and we have a bloodlust and we're greedy and we're prideful oh no, no, no. gotta eat that passover meal oh goodness do you see why Pilate like doesn't like these guys i mean here's one thing i asked andrew last night we hung out you know from reading this text here's what i can tell you Pilate probably had no desire to be a jew by the way these guys acted, I wouldn't want to be a Jew. Question, do we act that way? Do people go, I don't want to go to church. Do we act any different than the Sanhedrin? Moving on. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against them? Now here's what's really interesting. He says, what are the charges? Golly, I got a deal with you crazy people again. What's the charges? And they answer so arrogantly, well, if he were not a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Oh, look at our piety. We have such good judgment. And you can almost see Pilate like give the palm to forehead. And he says this. This is very, very interesting. Take them yourselves and judge them to your own law. Here's where it gets really interesting. Pilate's kind of giving a pass right now. Like, ah, just take them and deal with them yourself. But then they drop this line. But we have no right to execute anyone. Pause button. I'll, I'll tell you right now. My wife tells me I, I, I'm a grump in the morning, apparently. I just tell her I'm more like a bear coming out of hibernation. She says, you're such a grump in the morning. And I was like, huh, you know, I, I, I got to wake up, right? Can you imagine being Pilate? First thing in the morning, you got these band of misfits you don't like dealing with. They show up on your front doorstep and go, we want to kill this guy. Whoa, golly, I haven't even had my coffee. Folgers in the cup, please, first. He doesn't even get that far. We cannot put this man to death. And Pilate says, we don't have the right to execute anybody. 
And it says, now the text says this, and this is what's neat about John. He's constantly always referring back to the words of Jesus and Jesus kind of predicting things. The Jews objected. Verse 32, this happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Right there, here's what we got to start seeing. You have to start seeing, you know how we, you know when your kids kind of hang out with other kids and then they kind of get in trouble and your kids are with them and it's like your kids didn't really do it, it was the other kid and you look at your child and you go, hey man, wrong place, wrong time. We all grew up with that lesson, you know, be careful who you hang out with, they'll get you in trouble, wrong place, wrong time, not here. You might look at Pilate and you think, wrong dude, wrong time. No, he's not. God knew he was the right person for the right time. He needed a military leader who's more than likely got blood on his hands prior to being a prefect, served in the Roman legions, right? And he's at a time where he's got two strikes. (laughs) And Pilate isn't in the box exactly choking up and spreading out. He's just trying to still swing away blindly, thinking, well, they're just going to throw me a fastball and I'll hit it. But they throw the ultimate curveball, and God knew it. And he's orchestrating throughout Jewish and Roman history for the last several years to get this group of Sanhedrin to bring him to Pilate so he takes it to Pilate. Because why? They don't have the right of execution. Now we know somewhere in the life of Jesus, the Romans took the right of execution away from the Jews. How do we know this? Well, we know when we back up further into the Gospels, The Jews were stoning people like it was going to Sunday dinner. Adultery, bang. Murder, bang. Blasphemy, bang. They were used to, this was a way of life. It doesn't compute with us. We don't live that way. But for them, it was a common everyday practice. And Jesus says that when my time comes, I'm not going to be stoned to death. I'm going to be lifted up. Jews didn't crucify. Romans crucified. And God knew, I got to get them to Pilate. Right person, right time, right capabilities and incapabilities. Right judgments and right in judgments, unjudgments, whatever you want to call it, to get His Son to the cross. Do you see how God the Father is getting everything to connect? And He takes them to Pilate, and somewhere in the life of Jesus we understand that the Pax Romana, the law of Rome, there was a law that was passed by the time Jesus is making this prophecy and nobody understands it because they think if anybody's going to kill him, they're just going to stone him. It's going to be the Jews. But he says, I must be lifted up. From there to this moment, somewhere in that three-year, two-year history, the Roman law came out with a decree called Eus Gladii, the right of the sword. They came down on the Jews and said, the right of the sword is taken away from you. You are obviously killing people as easy as it is to go to Sunday dinner, and we're not allowing that anymore. If somebody gets put to death, it has to go through Rome. And so when people say, you get people out there today go, oh, well, Jesus was leading an insurrection, and so the Romans had to put him down. No, it's obvious they just haven't read the text, and they really stink at studying Roman history. Period. Because we understand from that that he wasn't leading the insurrection against Rome. He was simply declaring who he was. And we get that from Pilate because Pilate says, I find no fault in him. 
That's the beauty about John's gospel. It's constantly declaring who Jesus is coupled with the innocence and the purity of Jesus. Can you see it? And so they say, Pilate, verse 33, went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked, are you the king of the Jews? Now this is very interesting. Can you imagine for a second what Pilate was, what he was seeing? Jesus isn't standing there like he is in Revelation with many crowns and a beautiful garb and, you know, like sweet tattoos on his thighs and on his robes and like, you know, this sword kind of out of his mouth. No, no, no. This is a man who has been awake for over 24 hours. He's been beaten, probably got some cuts on his face, probably got a swollen eye somewhere. He's got clothes in which are still probably stained not only with sweat, but with blood because he's sweat drops of blood. Probably still got spit still on his face. Mangled, in chains, bound. And Pilate goes, are you the king of the Jews? You think Pilate had anything to fear in that moment? No. Like, what are these people doing? Confusion. Here's where the story gets really good. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, what a great answer. Is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? And Pilate goes, am I a Jew? It was your people, your chief priests, who handed me over to you. What is it that you've done? Fun fact. That what is it that you've done? We call that the Fifth Amendment. Illegal question. So just, here's a fun thing. If, I mean, I don't know if you ever know this, but if you ever get pulled over by a police officer and, you know, it's maybe late at night and they ask you, you know, what is it that you've done or what did you do or why did you do this and blah, 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 blah. Just fun fact for you, and I'm not an attorney, but I've sat in enough courtrooms to tell you, that's an illegal question. Feel free to look at the officer and go, Fifth Amendment, buddy, until you read rights and I accept them, don't ever ask me an illegal question. If you get pulled over at 1 o'clock in the morning because, I don't know, you're going home late from somewhere, maybe we don't really need to be, and the officer looks at you and says, have you been drinking tonight? Reply to him, congratulations, you just asked an illegal question. You want to rephrase that? What's awesome about Jesus, he doesn't do anything like that. Now me, I've seen myself do it, not a good example. But Jesus, great example, asked the illegal question, which we understand from the Romans. They got it. America got it from the Romans. A Romans got it from the Grecians. This has been around for like many centuries. Don't You can't ask the illegal question, the question of self-incrimination. And he asked Jesus, what is it that you've done? And Jesus answers so beautifully. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. What is it that you've done? My kingdom is not... Huh? You would think that there would be more in the dialogue like kind of getting to that, but there's not. Jesus doesn't give in. He knows the Roman law that he stumps Pilate beautifully. This is what I love about Jesus. I mean, he is so calculated. He gives the best answers to everything. But what's interesting is he, Pilate says, you are a king then. And this isn't too far from Pilate to understand. We understand that through Grecian 
the way they worshipped multiple gods, that bled over into the Roman Empire. The Romans had multiple gods. They had understandings that maybe the gods would come down and, you know, impregnate the women and there would be demi-gods. This isn't a far ideology from Pilate. He's in the ancient world. This kind of religion ran rampant. He knew it. So it probably didn't even mean anything to him. But then he says, you are a king then. And Jesus answered, I love the way the Greek says this. Yours says right. I don't like man. He says, you say well that I am a king. That is beautiful to me. In fact, for this reason, I was born. And for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Notice how he, he doesn't say, yeah, I was born in a kingly line. He could have. We understand he was. But he immediately just takes it straight to, my kingdom's not of this world, but you're right in saying I'm a king. And it's kind of still over Pilate's head. Everyone who listens to me listens to truth. What is truth, Pilate asked. And he went out again and says, I find no basis for a charge against him. Now, where John's gospel pretty much just stays with Pilate, we understand that it's at this point is where Pilate's like, I'm not finding a base. Send him over to Herod. And so they send him over to Herod. And Herod does his little dancing show with Jesus and says, I don't find any fault with him. And sends him back to Pilate. And I really think that the reason God orchestrated this to happen is to get us to go to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, where it says, if you want to put someone to death, you must have two witnesses. You can almost see the father penning the story going, uh-huh, witness number one, Pilate. Witness number two, Herod. It's constantly revealing through all of this backstory, all of these laws, all of this history, you can really see humans didn't write this story. So when people are like, well, the Gospels and the Bible was written by man. Uh, no, it was not only written by men. It was written by God. And the story can tell us how it was divinely orchestrated. He is the great orchestrator, is he not? And he gets his son to them, and they, they bring him back to Herod, or from Herod to Pilate. And it says in verse 39, But it is your custom that I release to you a prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? This mangly looking dude? They shouted back, No. Give us Barabbas. This is where the story gets interesting. I really think... And I, and I hope I can convey this to you a little bit this morning. A different side of this story that I really honestly think we don't touch on. Okay? There's an aspect to this, to this story that I've heard a lot of preachers preach on over the years. And this, this is not a, a club over their head, anything like that. I just think that there's a, a side of the story, an aspect of this story that they don't see. Because to be honest with you, out, I haven't really heard many preachers who'd served in the armed forces. 
So I want to paint a side of the picture for you this morning that might hopefully by the end of it give you a little bit more grace for Pilate and understanding that yes, he made the decisions he made, but at the end of the day, the father-willed story concludes he was the right person for the right time to get his son to the cross. When I was in boot camp, I was in boot camp for, Marine Corps boot camp from uh, November 14th, 2011 to February 10th, uh, 2012 and I was in boot camp over Christmas time <laughs> yeah Santa came to town and so the day like Christmas Eve they kind of said all right we're gonna we're gonna take it easy on you today and you're thank you and we had to still wake up do everything we normally did kind of pop rifles do some of that fun drill marching stuff and then the rest of the day um, not a whole lot went on but they wanted us to go to the Christmas Eve service. And so out on Camp Pendleton, you're in the middle of nowhere. Like when, when, when the sun goes down, it's just dark, right? And th because there's so many platoons and the chapel was no bigger than this room, probably honestly even smaller, it did have a, a upper deck um, balcony. And they could only fit like 500 Marines in there, 500 recruits. Well. Because there was so many of us, they kind of had to rotate us in. So you, you have a group go into the chapel, they worship for an hour, and like towards the end of that, you know, you, you have your next company coming forward, and then they go in, and those guys go out, and then it makes this rotation for, you know, probably a couple of hours. And so they said, well, we're going to chapel, and so we're marching to chapel, you know, and we we're stand outside, and we're all standing there like this, just waiting. We can hear the chapel service going on. And then it kind of gets really quiet, and you're like, okay, the preacher must be preaching. They, they're probably singing a final song, whatever, whatever. You can't hear anything. You can't see anything because it's just dark. And then all of a sudden, you start to hear from inside that chapel, you start to hear the song Silent Night being sung by 500 recruits. And then you heard this. you started to hear sniffs all over that platoon. And you got the sense really easily like, yeah, I'm missing home right now. I'm missing hugging my family. I'm missing the meals. I miss the smells. Sergeant Garcia was about probably six feet from me. We're standing there like this. He just walks up and goes, why do we do it, recruits? And nobody answered him. And he goes, we do it so others don't have to. We do it so others can go home to their families and sing Silent Night on Christmas Eve. And I'm here to tell you, that is a moment I will never forget. We tend to think and we tend to cast to the side. Pilate was a military man. And from day one of Marine Corps boot camp, it was, it is not about you. It's about the man to your right. And it's about the man to your left. It's about you being willing to be that sacrifice so your brother on your right, your brother on your left can go home and see their families. 
Pilate, you will never convince me, didn't have the same level of understanding. Because he knew when this crowd starts getting crazy, we are grossly outnumbered. And because of that, he's not afraid to make one sacrifice so that not only more Jews don't have more bloodshed, but that his own Romans don't have more bloodshed. You'll never be able to convince me that wasn't in his mindset for training. I will sacrifice this one for the glory of Rome. The same way so many men in America sacrificed their lives for the glory of the idea of America. He had that kind of understanding. And he made the decisions he did, not just because of the Jews. He had his own Romans in mind. And to that, I say, Ooh. But he finally gets to the point where he asks, what am I to do with this king of the Jews? What am I going to do with this guy? The crowd's going crazy. We're grossly outnumbered. I don't want bloodshed. He does the one thing I hope no one in this room does. He gets before them, puts his hands in a bowl of water, and he wipes his hands clean. You take him and you crucify him. And they did. And it says there in verse 16, he finally turned him over to be crucified. Here's what I'm here to tell you. Jesus, God the Father orchestrated the whole thing. <laughs> he used a military leader who was so concerned about his troops, who didn't want more bloodshed at a time of Passover. He's already got two strikes on account. And God used his cowardice and his indecisiveness, what? To get his son there. As well as using himself and Herod to declare, even though I'm turning this guy over to you, I still find him not guilty. Do you see the Father using all of those things to work everything into line to get His Son to the cross? And you think that story was just written by man? Can you see it? But I'm here to tell you what's fascinating to me is the King, Lord Sabaoth, over 300 times in your Old Testament, the name given to God is Lord Sabaoth. No, not Lord of the Sabbath. Lord Sabaoth literally means God of hosts. You know what a host is? Angel army. He's the God. He's the king of the heavenly armies. And he literally, the king of the heavenly armies, humbled himself to be a servant to come down and have himself put to death by a worldly army. The level of submission that Jesus has is, is just unparalleled. And on the day of His crucifixion, as this is going all of by, all the angels in heaven stood with their swords sheathed, with their, their spears and their swords, with their head bowed, knowing this is happening now, but this is the Father's will. But one day is going to come where they're not going to hang their heads. They are going to unsheathe those swords and Christ is going to lead them here. And when the same type of Roman government that put Jesus to death, the same kind of worldly armies are going to rise up against the army of heaven, God is going to whip them. 
That is something I cannot wait to see. But can you see the level of submission that Jesus had? Why? Because it was His Father at the right who was willing it. And I have to do my mission. I must accomplish the mission of the cross so that the Spirit can come and indwell in all of them. And to that I say, Oorah! That's my King. That's my God. That's my Father. And He willed it. May we all submit to the will of the Father to the extreme level that His Son did. Amen? I hope that just gets you a little bit fired up about Jesus and just how God can wrap it and tie it all together. So, that being said, will you just stand with me and we're going to pray and band's going to come on and we're going to sing another song and we'll get you guys out of here.